love the fact that we have so many talented people here who are able to sing and, and who are able to lead us in worship. And I think of Justin as well and Emily, who's not here this morning. I think they're at home and resting uh, with the baby. So wonderful to see that. So wonderful to see families in this, in this church body. So I'm so, so thankful for that and thankful for you. Uh, know whether you're here as a family or whether you're here as, with just uh, a single or what's <laughs> we're thankful for everyone. Oh, and I'm well, and Miss Elaine just turned that on me, so she said that she's thankful for me, and I'm so thankful that you are thankful for me. Just all the thankfulness going around, right? All right, well, I'm going to do a little something different here. Um, than I normally do, but that's okay. I'm going to start by reading our passage of Scripture this morning, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started, pick right up in chapter 5, verse 21. So let me, let me read this morning our Scripture, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. We started looking at this briefly last week. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, And whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. Well, the death penalty is a... Let me pray first, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Let's pray for our time. Pray for the sermon, pray that I would preach uh, with your authority, not my own, that your word would not return void this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the death penalty is a very controversial topic in our day. According to Pew Research, public support for it has decreased fairly steadily over the past 25 years. In 1996, 78% of Americans approved of it. That was down to 60% according to the latest data. Many Americans have concerns about the fairness of the death penalty. They even question whether it serves as a deterrent against serious crime. More than half of U.S. adults say that black people are more likely than white people to be sentenced to death for committing similar crimes. About 6 in 10, 63%, say that the death penalty does not deter people from committing serious crimes. Nearly 8 in 10 say there is some risk that an innocent person will be executed. Today, because of our modern sensibilities, executions are carried out in a shroud of secrecy. Most executions take place in detention facilities far away from us and far away from our watching eye. In U.S. US executions, they they usually have a few witnesses joining from behind a one-way glass in an adjacent room. Most of these witnesses are relatives of the prisoner, their families of their victims, and their prison, prison and judicial staff. Public officials constantly try to ensure that they are, these executions are carried out in the most humane way, even for those who have committed heinous crimes. The biggest public fear is that the death penalty may be carried out against an innocent party. Ironically, with improvements of forensic science, this is less likely than ever. Perhaps our desire to see uh, justice carried out, along with our fear of being falsely accused, fuels our great interest in even like detective shows and stories that we watch on television. Well, the last public execution was held in the early morning hours of August 14, 1936. Around 20,000 spectators turned out in the city of Owensboro, to watch the public execution of a 26-year-old man named Rainey Bethia. Bethia was a black man charged with the rape of a 70-year-old white woman. The punishment for his crime was public hanging. 
You might say that we've come a long way in how we deal with punishment for crime, especially in this area of the death penalty. After all, we are definitely more humane in our dealings than in the past. Well, as you probably know, there have been many methods of execution in man's, man's history. I'll spare you the, the gruesome details. But perhaps the two most gruesome ways are given in the Bible itself. We tend to think of stoning and crucifixion as gruesome because we find them on the pages of Holy, Spirit, or Holy Scripture. I often wonder if people wearing crosses recognize the gruesome nature of death on a Roman cross, but I digress. Have you ever wondered why executions, why we carry out executions in the first place? Why is murdering someone so dreadful that governments will execute you for it? Have you ever asked yourself if the death penalty is justified? What does God say about the death penalty, and when does he give reasons to carry it out? I might ask an even more and probing and personal question as we think through this issue of murder and executions. Have you ever been sinfully angry with someone? I'm talking sinfully angry. According to our Lord, this is the same as murdering someone. Well, Jesus addresses these questions and more here in Matthew 5, 28, 21 through 26. In Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus teaches the first of six demanding truths that characterize the kingdom way, which is at the heart of the Old Testament law. Jesus first teaches, thou shalt not get angry. Thou shalt not get angry. Let me give you a quick review as we approach this section. As we approach this section, I want to remind you that we have made it to the main body of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.20, he gives his incredible and provocative proposition statement. It may not sound provocative to us, but it certainly sounded provocative to his hearers. He says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not you will by no means, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we've discussed, this statement would have been incredibly shocking to his listeners. It would be similar today to telling a devout Catholic that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless their righteousness uh, exceeds that of their priest, or, or might even say that of the pope. They can't, they can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would actually be true, by the way. The conclusion would be that the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness, nor the Pope's righteousness today, will get them into heaven. You get that? If that shocks you on any level, then you might understand some, to some degree how Jesus' listeners felt. Now, starting in Matthew 5.21, Jesus begins to expound upon his proposition statement from 5.20. <clears throat> now, last week we began by asking the question, does Jesus teach a new interpretation of the Old Testament law? And ultimately, the answer is no. God gave his law to show man's need for his grace. As such, God never intended man to follow the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the contrast, therefore, he says this, the contrast, therefore, is not between the law given through Moses and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a contrast, rather, between the false interpretation of the law of Moses and the true presentation of the law given by the Lord himself, end quote. <clears throat> you get that. So what's going on here is, it, is that Jesus is contrasting the false interpretation of the law of Moses versus the true interpretation of the law. Now, here's what's interesting. We still see this today, right? We still see people misinterpreting the law today and misunderstanding the law today. So we need this just as much today as Jesus's listeners did even, even back then. So as we approach Matthew 5, 21 through 26, we need to mention the five fundamental assumptions we are using to interpret this section. First, we saw this last week, <clears throat> and I'll move through these quickly. First, we must recognize that Jesus speaks with absolute authority. Ultimately, he is God. He is the second member of the Trinity. As such, he speaks with all the authority of the Father. And in his own words, in John 12, 49, he says, he says this, For I do not speak from myself, but the Father himself 
who has sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So he speaks with absolute authority, even the absolute authority of the Trinity. Second of the fundamental assumptions, we're not to follow the letter of the law only, but the spirit of it. In this series, we're... We've seen some examples of, as I've gone through, we've seen some examples of how the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Now, we will see this more clearly today as we look at the command, thou shalt not murder. There is much more to that command than simply refraining from killing someone. Now, the third assumption is, the third assumption which follows from the second, is that our thoughts Our motives and our desires must match our actions. Our thoughts, motives, and desires must match our actions. Ultimately, this is the crux of the problem with with the scribes and the Pharisees. This is also the major trouble with any person or group struggling with legalism. We must desire to obey with the right motives. And we must recognize that that sin at the thought level is just as sinful as carrying out the the very deed. This can and most clearly be seen in the Tenth Commandment, actually. The Tenth Commandment, if you remember, is thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You see, God had actually already forbade stealing and adultery, right? He had already forbade the actual acts in the Ten Commandments. Those, those sins begin actually, what you have to understand is those sins, uh, the sin of adultery and the sin of stealing, actually begin with coveting. Do they not? Do they not? So God had already condemned sin at the thought level. I mean, that's, that was in the Ten Commandments themselves. So, so sins begin, the sins begin at the level of our thoughts and desires. This, lead, this leads us back to the fourth fundamental assumption. We must not think of the law as draconian or as oppressive. God loves us and he wants what's best for us. When we obey his law, we are not missing out on something good. God's law is good because God is good. Y'all get that? I mean, I, I, that has, that's a, such a fundamental thing that God's law is good because God is good. Paul described the commandment, thou shalt not covet, as holy and righteous and good in, in, in Romans 7, 12. They, they are my, God's commands are by no means oppressive, and we need to see that as we go through, as we go through this section, and I think it's gonna, we're going to begin to see that today. The final fundamental assumption is that Jesus doesn't concern himself with oppressive rules. So when we read the Ten Commandments, when we read Jesus, he's not concerning himself with these rules as oppressive, but he is concerning himself with the development of our spiritual character. Ultimately, the law is more about our spiritual character than blindly following oppressive rules. When we see the commands as oppressive then we will not recognize that following his commands actually develops our spiritual character. In the Old Testament, I want to use that as an example, Samuel told Saul, he said this in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He says, behold, behold, let me just start at the beginning. And Samuel said, has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul didn't understand that truth. He didn't understand that truth. He, he understood, he, he, he lived as though, he lived as though it was about the rule, right? He lived as though it was about carrying out the action. And that's why David was a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, uh, it says that God sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and, and he's appointed him as ruler over his people. When well, Acts 13, 22, it's, it's, it's quoted, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now, obviously, we know from Scripture that King David was not perfect, right? But David... The reason why David and Saul were different is because David desired to obey and to worship Yahweh, proving 
that God is more concerned with our spiritual character than, a, than following oppressive rules. Saul was concerned about following the rules. David was concerned about pleasing God spiritually. Guess who God looked on more favorably? With that, let's dive into Matthew 5, 21-26, where Jesus teaches the first of these six demanding truths that we're going to see over the next several, well, probably a couple of months because we're going to take a break for Christmas, but we're going to see the first one today, the first demanding truth that, char- that characterized the kingdom way, which is the heart of the Old Testament law. Jesus teaches, thou shalt not get angry. Now, you may notice that I changed that up uh, because of what's happening here in Matthew 5, but I'm going to explain that. So look at Matthew 5, 21, where Jesus gives the, the letter of the command. Jesus gives the letter of the command. He says this, now remember, remember the letter versus the Spirit, right? So he gives the letter of the command. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Now as we look at this verse, I want to remind you that second fundamental assumption that we are not to follow the letter of the command, but the Spirit of it, okay? Now look down at the first phrase. First phrase says, you have heard that the ancients were told. Now, we need to quickly work through the meaning of this phrase. This phrase could be translated, the ancients said or told. Now, obviously, we see from in your scripture, we see that, the, that in my, my translation, the Legacy Standard translation, they chose to translate this, you have heard that the ancients were told. Now, you have various translations. We went through that this morning in our hermeneutics class, but you have the, the NAT that goes, you have heard that it was said to an older generation. You have the ESV that, that says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Uh, but the point is, the, the point is, the question that comes up is, the, is that arises, who, uh, who told the ancients? Now, you could say, you could say that God told them. So, so when Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you could say that God told them. And, and that would be true because God did say in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Thou shalt not murder. That's a direct quotation of Exodus 20. This is God's command through Moses. Yet there's something more going on here. He goes on to say, whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Now the question is, where did he get this? Now, we can't attribute that quote, where that, that phrase, we can't contribute that to God, because his word is actually very clear in Genesis 9-6, where Yahweh gives Noah two crucial truths about murder. He says in Genesis 9-6, the two crucial truths is the consequence of murder in Genesis 9-6, the consequence for shedding man's blood will be the shedding of blood. Execution. So if one man kills another man, then the, uh, the consequence of that is going to be execution, shedding their own blood. Now, also, the second truth, the cr- crucial truth here, is that the reason, the reason for this is that God made man in his image. That's Genesis 9-6. It says, whoever sheds blood, by, man's, by man his blood shall be shed. So again, we see the execution for in the image of God, he made man. God cannot contradict himself. In Genesis 9-6, he declares that the consequence for murder is death by execution. That's the consequence. And oh, by the way, the Noahic covenant is, covenant is still in, we are still under the Noahic covenant. So just make sure you recognize that or know that. We are still under the Noahic Covenant. Therefore, it still stands that if man sheds blood, his blood shall be shed. That's still there. Now, obviously, it it comes down to the type of murder and all that stuff. But if I shed somebody's blood, if I kill somebody, then uh, my blood is required of me. In other words, the murderer murderer is guilty before God, right? God has declared that. Here's what's happening. The ancients, 
were given man's twisted, twisted logic. They had devised ways. Now, the ancients would be uh, the ancients of the people that came before them. So we're talking, Jesus is speaking 2,000 years ago. So the people that came before them, the Israelites that came before them, the ancients were given man's twisted logic. They had devised ways to lessen the offense and the penalty for the offense. So the Jewish teachers before Jesus probably taught that the only way to break the sixth commandment was actually shedding blood, was actually murdering, actually killing someone. But even more condemning was that they probably taught that the only penalty was human judgment and sentencing. They completely dropped that you're guilty before God, right? That God has the one who said that by man's blood, when man sheds his blood, that he's going to have, his, going to, have to be executed. That's basically cutting to the, to the chase. In effect, in effect, what's happening here is Jesus is completely shattering their smug self-righteousness. According to Jesus, they had self-righteously minimized God's command in three ways. In three ways. They had minimized the meaning of God's command, which stemmed from Noah's day. Now, we'll see this more clearly in the following verses, but for now, it is clear from Jesus' words that they were only taking them at face value. They did not consider the spirit of the command. They saw murder as and the actual act only, but missed the attitudes and motives they missed what we would call, or what we're going to call, the progression of sin that leads us to commit the act. So, so there's something behind murder that actually leads you to commit murder. And they missed that. They also minimized the penalty for breaking the command. The traditional penalty, according to the rabbis, the letter of the command, fell short of the biblical standard. What's the biblical standard? Well, as we've seen they did not uphold God's holy and binding command in the Noahic covenant of a life for a life. So God reiterated, actually reiterated that command to the Israelites in Numbers 35, 30, and 31. So it's not as if, again, I told you we're under the Noahic covenant even today, but it's not as if you can say the Noahic covenant doesn't count. He actually, but it, cause he actually reiterated this in Numbers 35, to the Israelites, that if a man strikes down a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the mouth of witnesses. Perhaps more importantly, perhaps more importantly, they didn't consider God's character in making these changes to the law's demands. See, God's reasoning for the prohibition was that man was, is made in his image. So what's happening, when I'm, if I murder someone, hopefully I never do, but if I did, I'm desecrating God's image as seen in man. That's a major offense. We have to, we have to recognize that this is an absolute, that would be an absolute massive offense against God's holy character. I think we don't, we don't realize how important it is that we uphold the image of God in man. Anything we do to minimize the offense is an offense against him, right? That's the point. Committing murder in all its forms makes us more like the devil, Satan, than like God. According to John 8, 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, right? So if I, if I commit murder, that makes me more like him than like God. That is a huge, huge offense, and we, can't, and we can't minimize it. But that's exactly what the, the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish religious leadership, was doing. Now look at Matt, Matthew 5.22. Matthew 5.22, where, where Jesus gives the spirit of the command. The spirit of the command. So we've seen the letter of the command. We've seen the letter. Now let's look at the spirit of the command. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts. Now, I should remind you, we've seen this again. This is, the first, the, one of the, this is actually the first fundamental assumption that I gave you, that when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's speaking with what? The authority of God, the authority of the Trinity. In effect, he is saying, you, have, you may have heard what the rabbis have taught and continue to teach. Now let me give you the true interpretation, God's interpretation of this command, the spirit of the command. Jesus' statement shows that his authority is even greater than the prophets and much greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. 
You could say, you could say, very correctly say, that he placed his authority even above the law of Moses because he gave God's interpretation of the law of Moses. He ultimately gave the law of Moses. He ultimately has the authority of God. He has what we would say messianic authority. This is much more authority than, than the scribes would even dare to use. Yet it was the authority of his teaching, according to Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it was this very authority of his teaching that amazed the crowds because he didn't teach as one, he taught as one having authority and not as their scribes, is what, is what Matthew tells us in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the contrast, therefore, is not between is not, I've already given this quote, is not between the law given through Moses and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a contrast between the false interpretation of the law of Moses and the true presentation of the law given by our Lord himself. So the point is, is that Jesus is giving the true interpretation. Now, with all the authority of the Father. So Jesus told them, in Matthew 5.22, when he says, But I say to you, Jesus tells them that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So with this, Jesus is raising the stakes much higher. Again, understanding Genesis 9.6, understanding the Noahic covenant, and understanding that God requires blood from those who shed blood. So Jesus, though, is teaching that simply being angry with our brother makes us guilty before the courts, before the court. Now, we're going to see, we're going to see why that's significant in a moment. But first, let me, say, let me say this. What is sinful anger versus righteous anger? So let's answer that question very quickly. Because you might be asking yourself, you know, can I be righteously angry? Well, specifically, specifically, he's talking about an inward anger, anger directed toward a person. <clears throat> this is the type of anger he's talking about. It is possible for you and I, it is possible that we could be righteously angry about sin without sinning. In Psalm 711, uh, David declares that God is a, is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Now we know from Scripture that God cannot sin. So when God, when it says that God has indignation every day, what we have to understand is that His anger, His indignation, is absolutely justified. Let me that. So, so we see righteous anger, and in Matthew twenty-one twelve, Jesus Himself demonstrated righteous anger against the money changers who defiled the temple. He actually went into the temple, and he, you, may, you might recall this, they were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the, the table of the money changers and his seats of those who were selling the sacrifices, the doves, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. So he was angry over their actions, and he, and he overturned the tables, but he did so in a righteous way. So therefore, we can have, there can be such a thing as righteous anger. But we need to be careful as we apply that to ourselves, right? Of course, we can get angry, right? We can get angry. We can, we can see atrocities such as abortion. We can see child abuse. We can see slavery. We can see sexual abuse. We can see all these things, and we can be rightfully angry about them, right? Yet we need to prayerfully, as we, as we pursue that, we need to ensure that even in that righteous anger, we're not acting out of sinful anger. You see, righteous anger, righteous anger, always leads us to act in godly ways to combat sin, right? I mean, that's the difference. Righteous anger, let me say that again, righteous anger leads us to act in godly ways as we combat sin. We may be righteously angry about something, and we, we may start a ministry based on, on our anger against that sin, Right? We may see we may we may see abortion as this grievous thing, which it is, and and we may start a ministry based on how how much we hate that sin. We may write about it. We may we may help those who are who are facing that the reality of pregnancy outside of marriage, and and we may serve them. I mean, we can do a lot of things to combat that that sin and that are righteous and holy. These can be righteous and, and, and holy ways to exhibit our anger and frustration with the sinful world around us. But as I said, 
But we have to be careful, is the point. We have to be careful that we're not acting, we're not acting out, of, out of sinful anger. But as I said, Jesus is not talking about righteous anger. He's talking about sinful anger against a person. Mostly, this is exhibited by wanting harm to come to that person in whatever. You may want it in whatever way. You may want them to experience hurt physically. You may want them to experience hurt mentally. You may want them to exhibit hurt or have hurt spiritually. I mean, it, it, you, want them to, to, you want them to hurt in some way. And this is, true. this is true even if we've justified our actions for righteous reasons. Like, right, you, you know, you see the abortion clinic and you see the abortion doctor and you want something really bad to happen to them or you cause something to bad, bad to happen to them. That's unrighteous. That's an unrighteous way to vent our righteous anger, if you will. Now, the first murder is in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, uh, Cain, who is Adam and Eve's first son, kills Abel. That first murder was the result of unrighteous anger. If you want to, you can turn to Genesis 4. I want to go through this really quickly. In Genesis 4, if you, if you turn there, in Genesis 4, Eve gave birth to Cain. Eve gave birth to Cain. And I would argue that Eve believed that Cain was the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. I'm just going to throw that out there. Some of you have heard me argue this, but I would also argue that Adam and Eve raised Cain to believe that he was the promised one to return them to the paradise of the garden. That's what I, I believe they were, was going on. Eve also gave birth to Abel, Cain's brother. According to Moses... Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. And that's the connection, by the way, to the garden. Now, just listen to the account from Genesis 4, 3-5. This is, again, the first murder. This is, this is out of right, unrighteous anger. In Genesis 4, 3, if you're there, you can follow along. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So here's the point. Cain, so Cain became what? Very angry. And his countenance fell. Okay, so there we have anger. What is, what is, who is, who is, who is Cain angry with? Now you could say that he's angry with God, but he's also angry with his brother. Now, there are several opinions as to why God did not regard Cain's offering. Now, personally, personally, I believe that God had set the precedence of a blood offering in the garden. When he, he had provided Adam and Eve with garments of skin, which must come from an animal, therefore that animal would have been the first animal to die. So that would have been the first sacrifice. So I believe that Cain brought an offering of the produce of the ground from the garden which he planted. Like I said, he thought that he was, I believe he thought that he was the promised redeemer who would return them back to the garden. But God had shown in the garden that shed blood is the only or was the only acceptable offering to atone for sin. And that's actually, that actually shows up in Leviticus 17.11 where it said it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And in Hebrews 9.22, the, the writer of Hebrews says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The apostle John puts it this way. John says that, that Cain murdered Abel because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So basically, if you put it together, you have the brother who's trusting the Lord and he's bringing the blood sacrifice which is modeled in the garden and then you have Cain on the other hand who's bringing the produce of the, of, of the ground which I believe is his works. Does that make sense? So Abel is offering by faith. Cain is offering by works. I mean that's really what it boils down to. God did not Except Cain's offering because he didn't recognize God's grace. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now pick up in, in Genesis 4, 6. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will your countenance not be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is lying at your door and it's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, 
Now, I would say what he said to him is, let's go out into the field. It says, and it happened when they were in the field, but I would say that ultimately Cain spoke to his brother Abel, said, hey, let's go out in the field. He lured him out in the field, and it happened while they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from, from the ground. And so what we find here is that Cain's seething anger, and this, this, is, the, this is what we have to recognize, Cain's seething anger against God and against, well, against Abel, and ultimately against God, but his seething anger led him to rise up against Abel and kill him. Now, what that proves is, graphically proves is, that sinful anger, unrighteous anger, is at the root of all murder. Let me say that again. Unrighteous anger is at the root of all murder. Murder, that is. Not necessarily killing, Right? I, want to, I want to make sure we understand that. There's a difference because there, are, there, is, there is righteous killing because there's execution, right? right? When somebody, there, there, there are people who deserve death. We have to see that biblically. Okay? But sinful anger is, a, is at the root of murder. Thou shalt not murder. So clearly Jesus is referencing an unrighteous and sinful anger. Now, what we have to recognize then is the progression, the progression of sin leading to murder. Now, again, the progression of sin leading to murder. The root of sinful anger is pride, vanity, jealousy, hatred, malice, and revenge. We could say, we could say the root of murder, the root of murder is coveting, right? I mean, coveting leads me into those directions, right? So the root of murder is unrighteous sinful anger. So with this, we can see the ultimate, we see the progression of sin ultimately leading to murder. And this has been true ever since Adam sinned in the garden as evidenced by his own sons, Cain and Abel. And beloved, we have to see this progression of sin that culminates with murder and judgment. Now go, go back to Matthew 5.22 if you're back in Genesis. Flip back to Matthew 5.22. This is exactly the progression of sin that Jesus says will ultimately land you in a fiery hell. That's the exact progression. That's what he's describing, I believe he's describing in Matthew 5.22. So, he says, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So you get angry over something, that anger makes you guilty before the court. <clears throat> Now, then you say, he says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. That's a progression. You, then you say, Raka, this is, this is guilt, enough to make you guilty before the Sanhedrin. This would re represent the highest human court in Jewish society. So, so he says, the first thing, getting angry with them, makes you guilty before the human court. Now saying, Raka, it makes you angry before the highest human court in Jewish society, similar to our Supreme Court. Raka is a, a word commonly used commonly in Jesus' day. It, it doesn't have an exact English equivalent. Therefore, most translations, excuse me, just transliterate the Greek term. Raka is a word used to maliciously abuse, deride, or slander another person. It was a word of arrogant contempt. And could be, you could render it things like brainless idiot or worthless fellow or silly fool or empty headed or maybe even uh, blockhead. I think, was it in Peanuts that somebody was called a blockhead? Yeah. So, this is slandering someone made in God's image enough to make that, and, is an, and what we have to recognize is that it's enough to make you guilty of murder. But Jesus doesn't stop there. So I hope you see the progression that's happening. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, fiery hell is translated from the name of the valley just southwest of Jerusalem. It was used as the city dump where the trash was continually burned. And in that place, 
the fire and smoke and the putrid stench never ceased. And it, became to, it came to be known or synonymous with hell, the place of endless torment and, and fire. So if you went to this place, it, was, it would be a place of endless torment and, and fire. So, so, so anybody that says, you fool, is guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The word translated fool means stupid or, or dull. Uh, the English word moron is derived from it. The word we, was used in secular Greek literature of an obstinate, godless person saying to someone, you fool, is accusing them of being stupid, but it's also accusing them of being godless. Now, what we have to see here, and I, I hope you can see this, is that there's a progression here. There's a progression. It's getting worse and worse, all the way to the point of going into the fiery hell. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, the three illustrations in this verse show increasing degrees of seriousness. To be angry is the basic evil behind murder. To slander a person with a term such as raka is even more serious because it gives expression to that anger. And to condemn a person's character by calling him a fool is even more slanderous still. Again, do you see the progression? And we can see that progression even in the, the penalty for it, right? Because you're guilty before the human court, you're guilty before the Supreme Court, now you're guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. You see the progression. And I, I want to make sure you get that. The question is, what does Jesus mean by using these illustrations? Beloved, again, we have to see sin as a progression. James shows this progression in James 1, 14 and 15. And oh, by the way, James is Jesus' half-brother, and, and he, I would argue, gives, a, a gives an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount in James. But he says in James 1, 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Now that sounds very, very similar to what Jesus is doing in 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 Matthew 5.22, right? There's this progression that leads ultimately to the fiery hell, and James says ultimately to death. Do you all see that? Beloved, the act of murder begins in the heart before it progresses to our hands. It starts with our evil thoughts against someone before it progresses to evil actions. And if left to run to the extreme... Our evil thoughts and actions will always culminate in plunging the knife into the heart of our opponent. The only way to stop that progression is to recognize the unrighteousness of those thoughts. The unrighteousness of anger. That's the only way to stop that progression. Then we must... Oh, by the way, fear can stop the progression as well, but that doesn't, that's, that's the wrong motive, right? I mean, I, I may fear actually confronting somebody that I'm angry with, and I may not confront them, but that doesn't exonerate me. But I'm talking about taking it to its ultimate end, and w which is what Jesus is doing here. So, if we're on that path, if we're on that progression, then we must take decisive action to change our path before it proceeds from bad to worse, before it gets to that point. At this point... Jesus gives two illustrations of making this divisive change in direction, and these go quickly. He said, the first one is, reconcile with your brother. Look at Matthew 23-24. He says this, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go, First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, I would argue that this is a picture of the seriousness of allow allowing sin to fester in our hearts. The picture is one of going to present your offering at the, offer, at the, at the altar. There, you remember your brother has something against you. Notice that it's something he is angry with you about, right? He's angry. I'm at the altar and I realize, oh, Keith is angry at me. So, there I remember he's angry with me. Now, notice it's something he's angry with you about. So, Keith is angry with me. Sin is so serious 
the progression of sin is so dangerous that you must be willing to leave your offering and go and make it right with your brother. If I'm at the altar, I need to go to Keith and I need to make it right with him. In other words, you never want sin to allow sin to fester in your brother's heart and you certainly don't want it to fester in your own heart. So it's so serious and I'm so concerned about my brother being angry with me that I need to leave my offering and I need to go to him and I need to say, brother, brother. Let's get, this, let's get off that path. This path leads to a fiery hell. That's how serious it is. Now, look back at your text in 525. This is the second illustration of making a decisive change of direction to avoid this progression, this incredibly dangerous progression. Look at 525. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way. Now notice this, it's a path. You're on the way. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Again, this is a graphic illustration of this path of progression of sin that we're on, that we get on. And, and so he's on, you're on your way with your opponent. Uh, and so the, the opponent is going to hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you're going to be thrown into prison. The, pic- the picture here is you're being sued by your opponent. It seems as though they have something legitimate against you. In other words, you have wronged him and have sinned against him and he is taking you to court to hand you over for judgment. Again, notice that progression. He hands you to the judge and the judge to the officer and the officer throws you into prison. Jesus says, do not let it get to that point. Make friends with him now. Make friends with him quickly. In other words, do what you can to be reconciled with him because it's so serious. You need to do what you can do to avoid sin's progression so that you won't be thrown into prison. Look down at Matthew 5.26. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last quadrants, the last cent. Jesus is not talking about an earthly prison, is he? I'm not talking about an earthly prison. He's ultimately talking about the fiery hell in 522. You're on, that, you're on that progression. You're on that progression and you are guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. You need to do something to change it. You need to be, you need to be serious about making that change. If you get sent to hell, into hell, there is no escape until we have paid every last cent that we owe, but we can never repay that debt Uh, the certificate of debt which consists of decrees against us which is hostile to us this debt against a holy God can never be repaid by our works of righteousness ever ever it's that serious that serious but if you're in Christ if you cried out to him for mercy and grace he has saved you in Paul's words in Colossians 2.14, he has canceled that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. If you're in Christ, I pray that you continue to walk in righteousness before Him. Right? If you... Some of you, I know I have in my past, sinfully struggled with anger. We need to see the seriousness of it. We need to see the seriousness of it. Regarding that struggle, I hope you take heed to James's words in James 1, 19 and 20. He says this. Again, James is such a wonderful exposition of our Lord's words from the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Then he says this, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you're here today and you know him, and you struggle with sinful anger, I hope you'll understand that progression. If you're you're not in Christ, I pray that you'll cry out to Him in saving faith. If you're here today and you don't know Him, 
You're on a path. You're on a path. You're on a progression that's going to lead you to a fiery hell. I pray that you'll recognize that He offers mercy and grace. Our Lord Jesus stands ready to forgive you. And and don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake of believing that because you haven't committed a huge sin like murdering someone with your hands. Even being sinfully angry is enough to send you to a fiery hell. I mean, that sounds harsh, does it not? Until you consider the holiness of God. It sounds harsh until you consider the holiness of God and you consider His offer of grace. His offer of grace. James has an exhortation for you as well. He says this in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You may think that you're keeping the law perfectly. You could keep the law, perfectly keep the law and only have one slip and be guilty of it all. Such is the holiness of God. That's how holy God is. And this is ultimately Jesus' message in these verses. Even the best of us are sinful in our hearts. My, my guess is that most of us here, if not all of us here, have been sinfully angry uh, very recently, if not within the past 24 hours. And that's enough to send you in a fire, into a fiery hell. I mean, that's what you have to recognize. But God's grace is sufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient. Even the best of us are sinful in our hearts. Even the best human is in the same boat with the worst. And you may be saying again, how can God be so cruel to judge like that? But beloved, the point is God shows no partiality. God shows zero partiality. The answer is that God sent His own Son to pay your debts if only you would believe in Him and cry out for His mercy and grace. We're going to pray and then we're going to turn the corner and take a time to, time to observe the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we, we praise You this morning. I do pray that we would recognize the progression of sin that leads to that leads to a fiery hell. But that you've given a provision, the provision, the provision of your Son. If only we would believe and trust in Him. As we this morning look toward the Lord's table, Father, may we remember what the Lord has accomplished by coming to this earth, what your Son, the Lord Jesus, has accomplished in coming to this earth and living the perfect life, dying a death that He did not deserve, on the cross, fulfilling Your holy law, having defeated sin and death, having been raised from the dead and ascended to Your right hand on high. Father, may we remember that even today and remember as well as we observe the Lord's table that our Lord Jesus is coming again. He's coming again in power and authority and in judgment. And Father, one day that we will enjoy the fruit of the vine in His presence. In Christ's name, amen.